giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back with you here on The Punch Out 52121, 21st of May, 2021, Friday. Very happy to be closing out the week with you here today, and we've got plenty for you on the show, as we always do. We're going to be talking about the issue regarding the commission or alleged commission in Congress about the Capital Six incident. We're going to be talking about zombie fires in the Arctic regions of the globe. Yes, that's right, zombie fires. But before we get to either of those two important stories, we're going to be talking about the expansion of predatory lending in Latin America being supercharged by the Biden administration. Well, in a fairly low-profile meeting this week, it happened on Monday, between the Congressional Hispanic Caucus and Vice President Kamala Harris, Harris broached an interesting topic, internet-based micro-lending as an important part of the new strategy being pursued by the Biden administration in Central America, specifically Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador. This caught my eye because while it seems relatively ordinary and on its face perhaps unobjectionable, when you put all the pieces together— it actually seems like the upshot is what's, of what is being proposed here would actually be the expansion of predatory lending tactics into these countries using new technologies. Now, specifically, as Axios reported, Harris, quote, discussed options for micro-lending and digital banking technology in the Northern Triangle to help address a root cause of the immigration crisis. Developing infrastructure to disperse foreign assistance more directly is one way to guarantee Central American residents of Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras reserve U, uh, receive U.S. support amid concerns about local government corruption. End quote. That's the Axios report there. Now, I have to say it's that wording in particular that sparked my interest here because, honestly, what is the relationship between digital banking technology and the quote-unquote root causes of immigration from these countries? The implication seems to be that it will create the space to give aid directly to people in these countries with the further implication then being that the root causes of immigration are solely due to corrupt local officials stealing bank loans meant for small businesses or something to that effect. And increasing my interest even more is the fact that micro-lending was specifically mentioned because it was also specifically mentioned in Biden's campaign platform about what he was going to do in Central America, mentioning in, uh, directly there that one of the reasons this was a, a something they wanted to pursue, micro-lending, is that there were large flows of remittances making up a big part of the economy in those countries. So this really raised two questions in my mind. Well, one, you know, the root causes of immigration are clearly not just corruption in the abstract or even the kind implied here about bank loans and aid disbursements. Even though it's obviously an issue, corruption is also an issue in rich countries. 
The problem is these countries have governments that do not prioritize any sort of inclusive or sustainable development and have delivered not much more than mass poverty and their only job creation, quote unquote, strategies revolve around the massive exploitation of mineral resources and allowing agribusiness to have big plantations and exploit the agricultural resources as well. And that raises another issue as well with me. And that is, I mean, remittances to these countries are not like foreign direct investment. They are survival funds. People aren't sending money back to their families and friends to promote a small business sector or something. I mean, the very fact that massive remittances coexist alongside mass migration reflects this. The huge sums of money are not reducing poverty. They're helping people survive amidst poverty. So what's really going on here? Well, ultimately, it's the mass expansion of predatory lending using so-called fintech or financial technologies combining together with the goal of U.S. imperialism in the region, which is to have no actual change to the right-wing status quo in these countries. Quote-unquote fintech is thrown around a lot, but the best way to really think about it, especially in this context, is unregulated banking. Most fintech is trying to operate in gray areas of many banking rules that predate the ability to use these sophisticated technologies in the financial sector as an in-run around the differing rules that are designed and succeed to varying lesser degrees to protect consumers. Now, most famously on this front, China last year just crushed the IPO of the nation's largest private company, Ant Group, specifically because of concerns it was pretending to be a tech company when it was really using technology to skirt banking rules and set up a tremendously dangerous situation, which, empower, which would empower all sorts of dubious lending. But right here in the United States, quote-unquote fintech has also been a way for predatory lenders, the payday loan people, more or less, to reinvent themselves. Now, one way this happens is through the so-called rent-a-bank schemes. Now, that's where fintech companies are incorporated in one state, but then they partner with banks in other states, which then exempts them from state banking laws. Then the two companies combine to start making predatory loans to people uh, in these states. And the way the loans, of course, are packaged are that while well, the bank is partnering with some innovative company offering loans online through your phone, some sort of other tech babble that makes it sound like somehow it's different and better than a regular bank loan. But the upshot is, is they're just exploiting a legal gray area to rope people into loans that are clearly usurious. So when you put all this together, it makes sense. Under the guise of, quote-unquote, fighting corruption and poverty, the U.S. will encourage, quote-unquote, fintech companies to get into the remittance game. Undoubtedly, all sorts of schemes will pop up, some undoubtedly being promoted by groups like USAID, encouraging people to work with their families in the U.S. to turn at least some of their remittance payments into so-called investments in various schemes, allegedly helping people working in the informal sector build more traditional businesses. The type of thing that's going to sound good, it's going to look good in a brochure, but there is a reason why all across South Asia and Africa, where micro-lending is already a very popular international aid topic, uh, something that governments are always promoting, those countries remain mired in poverty. And also it serves another very important goal. While it's pitched at avoiding corruption, i.e. addressing the root causes, by making the central issue corruption in the abstract, not governance and policy, it takes the onus off the U.S. to address the deeper issues. The issue isn't corruption in the abstract, of course, but the economic model. Yet the U.S. spends all of its resources supporting the parties that promote the economic model that's causing mass migration. In fact, anyone proposing anything different is branded as a heretic and part of a plot by Venezuela and Cuba to take over the world.
So by implying there is a quote-unquote fintech solution to making aid flows more effective and thus helping development and thus stemming the tide of immigration means that they don't have to address their political commitments to these regimes that are massively violating people's civil, social, and human rights. And as we've been implying the whole way through, it opens up new ground for powerful interests in tech and the finance industry looking for ways to trap people in predatory lending cycles so they can make big profits. So overall, it'd be a big win for the interest of elites in both sets of countries over the poor and working people, without a doubt. And, you know, even though this all can seem a bit esoteric and it certainly was flying under the radar in terms of people talking about it, it's crucial to understanding that despite the constant lip service to addressing quote-unquote root causes of immigration, the U.S. is doing everything it actually can to avoid addressing the real root causes of immigration, which are rooted, if you will, in their own policies. New research released this week in the journal Nature has some of the first real measurements and impact estimates of quote-unquote zombie fires in the Arctic regions of the Earth, raising alarm among climate researchers in particular. I mean, honestly, just the fact that we're talking about something like zombie fires as a thing should let you know how serious the climate crisis really is. As Axios explains, quote, zombie fires are blazes that ignite and burn in one season and then smolder through the winter by slowly combusting within peat and other soils, emitting smoke, but little or no flames. Then they reemerge during the next spring, erupting into flames once again, end quote. So essentially, they're forest, fiber, forest fires that hibernate for the winter. The problem is peat releases large amounts of pollutants that cause climate change. So large amounts of it burning all winter is not good. The researchers found that between 2002 and 2018, zombie fires in Alaska and the Northwest Territories of Canada emitted 3.5 million metric tons of carbon. The majority of these emissions occurred in just two fire seasons, 2015 and 2010. And of course, the paradoxical element of it here, or ironic, I don't know what you want to say about it, uh, about the zombie fires are that they're already being driven by the overall rise in fires across the Arctic in the summer due to global warming, which is driving more and larger wildfires all over the world. So then by contributing to the trend of warming, the zombie fires just intensify the feedback loop that's pushing climate change in the first place. And the Arctic is already warming at twice the rate as the rest of the globe. So this is an emerging trend, and the article in Nature noted that there's important new data that needs to be gathered and needs to be kept on these zombie fires, also known as holdover fires, to get a better sense of what's actually happening. And they say, according to their own estimates, they're probably underestimating the impact of these zombie fires in terms of climate change, hence the very urgent need for new and more and better and publicly accessible information. I mean, we've made it to the zombie fires level of climate change feels like that should really underscore the urgency of addressing it. Well, the end of the week in the Congress of the United States has been mainly dominated with the back and forth over whether or not to establish a quote-unquote bipartisan commission into the January 6th mob attack on the Capitol. While a proposal to do so has passed the House with 35 Republicans defying their leaders, it seems dead in the water in the Senate, although the outcome isn't 100% set yet. The entire issue is, without a doubt, political theater. 
In terms of investigations, there are actually already nine House committees and subcommittees investigating what happened in some way uh, there on January 6th. And ultimately, a quote-unquote bipartisan 9-11-style commission is being called for by Democrats and some Republicans. is unlikely to do much more than essentially just replicate the exact same work, but with a higher media profile. And quite frankly, the record of these types of commissions and actually shedding too much light on what actually happened isn't too great anyways. So for the parties, support and opposition for this are essentially about the 2022 elections. Republican opposition, however, has interestingly enough opened up another front in the Democratic debate about whether or not that party should abolish the filibuster. So it has a slightly separate significance on that front. For Democrats who control all of the House investigations, this is all about Trump. Democratic lawmakers and consultants have been making it pretty clear in the political press that they want to tar all Republicans as supporters of a Trump-like agenda and highlight their ties to and fealty as well to Donald Trump. So a high-profile commission that is guaranteed, it really only can, paint Trump and his hangers-on badly, particularly their close association with far-right extremists, would obviously be a very useful campaign tool. So for Republicans, there's the obvious counter-motivation to avoid that happening. And that's why they made their real stand on the issue of the commission about being able to also investigate the left as a part of what this commission's remit would be. In particular, they wanted to investigate the uprising last summer and are saying, or they were saying, that these two things are basically the same, the capital attack and the uprising, and thus they should be investigated together. Now, of course, they want to bring that up for the same reasons Democrats want to bring up Trump. Most consequentially, senior Democrats are now shopping a narrative to the press that the fact that Republicans will block even a bipartisan commission on something many of them have claimed to denounce is a sign that the filibuster should be ending. If you can't get Republicans to agree to this, goes the logic, then what's the point in trying to get them to agree to anything when you don't actually have to? So it's created yet another pressure point around the just absurd unwillingness of Democratic leaders to end the filibuster and pass a range of legislation that the majority of the country supports, like fixing bridges and providing childcare. Most likely, Democratic leaders will just force Republicans into showing their opposition on the Senate floor, try to embarrass them a little bit in the media. But the most important element of it is that it has raised, yet again, the principal contradiction in Washington, D.C. And that is the broader issue of the filibuster, which speaks to the fact that the majority refuses to use the power of the majority to actually do anything. They seem willing to sacrifice literally anything that they're proposing, no matter how popular or how necessary, on the altar of pursuing quote-unquote bipartisan government, the so-called American way, even if the actual result of that is a worse life for most Americans. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthroughnews. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. Yeah.